0: Welcome to the Enable Me podcast series where we bring together stroke survivors, health professionals and researchers providing you with practical advice to enable you on your journey to reclaim your life after stroke. The advice given in this podcast is general in nature and you should discuss your own personal needs and circumstances with your healthcare professionals. You can join the conversation at enableme.org.au. This series is presented by Australia's Stroke Foundation, working to prevent, treat and beat stroke.
1: Welcome to part two of our podcast on getting the most out of the National Disability Insurance Scheme or NDIS. If you haven't listened to part one, I recommend checking it out as it covers the basics, including how to get access to the NDIS and how to set up a plan to achieve your goals. In this second part, we ask what you can do when things don't work out right, and how you can appeal, and then what happens after you're on the NDIS, including managing a plan and service providers, and going through an annual review. In a few moments, we'll speak to NDIS local area coordinator Gabriella Objetivo and to Carol Pham from StrokeLine. But first, we have with us in the studio young stroke survivor and author Emma G. Emma is an occupational therapist who, since her stroke, has become an inspirational speaker, presenting on person-centred care and resilience. She's also written a book about her stroke journey called Reinventing Emma. Emma, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Now, you have been a guest on this podcast before, and I'm sure a lot of people would know about you anyway. But for those who don't, could you quickly tell us your stroke story?
2: Yeah, so I was um, working foot-arm as an occupational therapist with stroke survivors early in rehab, and cut a long story short, I was... Diagnosed with a malformation in my brainstem um, called an arteriovenous malformation, which um, during removal bled and I had a stroke um, due to that hemorrhage and went into a coma. So that was the beginning of my journey, um, which was when I was 24, so 13 years ago. And being a recipient of the care I'd once provided as a therapist, I went through my own rehab.
1: Well, we'll really get into your story about what you went through getting on the NDIS. But first of all, I mean, it was a big, uh, a big change. Obviously, the NDIS in um, in Australian policy. What yep. were your expectations for it coming into it?
2: I think, as a stroke survivor, that um, knew the importance of having a good, um, strong support network, um, and in a way, being um, getting used to having that support to enable me to do a lot more, um, I was really excited at the prospect that I could continue that journey and have support to do so, and it meant that I would. Probably, I thought I would have a lot more um, normality with the other supports that, uh, that were providing assistance pre NDIS. And so, um, to be honest, I thought this is so important to enable people, particularly those that don't have support to be able to sustain the longevity of their conditions. And I, um, yes, I was really optimistic about it and had no hesitation that I would be an eligible participant and it would just roll over from what I was currently doing.
1: So then what happened when you did apply, though?
2: So um, as people can't see me, I have quite a lot of lot of physical deficits from my stroke and, and I do require quite a lot of support. I live independently, um, but in order to do that and return to work and do everything I do, I need a little support. And so um, I thought that transition to NDIS would be easy and when I applied, um, when I got their letter of rejection, saying that my assessment did not meet the criteria and I was not eligible as a participant, I was extremely crushed. Um, Not only personally, because I knew I needed that support, but also professionally as I do, do a lot of... Like, I advocate a lot. So a lot of people were saying to me, hey, Em, if you're not eligible... How can we even, well, what's the point of us going through it? Um, you you present with the physical, you know, it's obvious to you, that you need help. And particularly for those that either don't have support or don't have the physical um, impairments that are quite evident when you see me, um, they thought there's no way that the invisible signs, signs that we have since our stroke or whatever injury were required is um we're gonna be eligible.
1: So presumably you uh, you appealed that decision, did you?
2: Yeah, so um unfortunately um, when I got that letter of rejection I was quite unwell and so three months afterwards I went to appeal it but unfortunately that period of appeal is three months so it had expired um and I was already unwell so I was probably more vulnerable and reliant on support to advocate for me to advocate and um so I when I was able I got um two other occupational therapists who I'm um, quite, well, I know quite well. They help me um, go through all the criteria and reapply and re- and and go from scratch.
1: Yeah, you have an advocate support as well with that.
2: So my, um, I also um, had uh, my um, NDIS planner help me go through that process. Who. Uh, Thankfully, in my in my nature as an occupational therapist, one of my friends works quite high up in that in the space, So it was quite, like amazing opportunity that I had that support with me.
1: So what was it? What did it actually take then for you to get through and to get on the NS? What was the, the magic words or? What did it? What did it require?
2: It was a very, 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 very long process and meant quite a few um, discussions. And um, first of all, I had to educate all my providers and my other advocates did too about how to pose um, letters, evidence to suggest that because a lot of my um, providers wrote despite all these deficits, M still lives independently, M can still do all these things. And they knew that that was my mentality. It was about ability, not disability. And basically, to be eligible, they had to just focus on the deficits and the impairments. Um, And so it was about ways of educating them on how this had to happen. And in a way to withstand that language and that it was very demeaning how it was posed um, and it was all about what I couldn't do, that's where having support was easier to withstand that because I could just let them say, hey M, that's too, you have being too positive, just focus on, on a scale of what, like one to ten on a bad day what you can't do. So for me, I, you know, I changed over thirteen years of what I could do, not what I couldn't.
1: And has that, uh, like, has that affected your outlook ongoing or is it the sort of thing that you it just have to get through? It definitely,
2: it definitely did. Um, last year when I appealed and particularly after all these um providers and amazing providers that I have saying all the, listing everything I couldn't do, um, I still received a phone call saying that I still didn't meet the criteria. So thankfully my ophthalmologist um, um, again wrote, you know, M's legally blind and that got me over the line. Right. So, um, but I think for me... um, Last year I had to focus on the negative side and subsequently that that really was such a gruelling, disempowering process and at the time it was awful but with hindsight it's enabled me to really reflect on that and think if I don't, didn't have support or if I hadn't had support to appeal... Then, perhaps I wouldn't have the services in place that I do now, which you know in a way makes it worthwhile, but yeah. it wasn't fun.
1: Yes, I guess that is it. It is focusing on on getting you those services that that you need. yeah, what what services
2: do you have under your plan? So um, I've got quite a good plan, so at the moment I've, I get um, my unit cleaned every week so I've got a cleaner. I've got um, maintenance assistance, so um, anything from changing a light globe to picking up my dog's dog food. Um, you know, something my dad would have to always do, but now I can enjoy time with him and he doesn't need to do that um, and it's not such a burden on him. Um, I get... Kara is about three hours a week doing things like collecting mail, um, getting lunch, um, chopping up food if I need help, um, putting out my bins, things that, you know, my mum would do. And now, you know, that's not necessary that she does that. So I also have a quick been entitled to upgrade my shower seat um, and I've um, also was eligible for a new electric scooter um, which is, I don't drive so it enables me to go out and get places um, I still um, self manage my, my I don't take medication, I just do yoga and swimming but um Basically it means that I can um, within my plan and it's individual to everyone and Gabriella will probably speak to that more you know about that but um, I have transport covered so to get to yoga or swimming whilst I, it's not eligible to pay for the actual membership of it it enables me to to endure, you know, to, it's one lesson to think about sitting on a tram for 40 minutes there and back, you know. Um, another thing I've do is I've gone back to rehabilitation twice a week at Epworth Hospital um, to try and, um, and you'll probably laugh here because I'm on a walking phone, but I'm trying to run again. So um, I'm training twice a week for that um, and that's a very emotionally taxing thing and definitely it would not be possible if I – I wouldn't choose to do it if I didn't have that financial support covered through the NDIS, so – and I'm about to go overseas um, on a holiday to Europe and my equipment over in Europe, um, my electric scooter and wheelchairs which are in place um, to enable me to go to places I couldn't access normally, um, that is reimbursed through the NDIS. So that's a, a, an expense I definitely wouldn't, um, take out my pocket, but I need. Um, and in the past, for thirteen years, self-funded all that. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's worth appealing it. I can see why people wouldn't appeal.
1: So, some of those things, obviously, a lot of them are like regular services you get, but then other stuff is like the the electric scooter, which is like a big piece of equipment. Yeah. Has that all come through? Has that all been? been well,
2: out? Um, you know, it's been a. I was saying to Carol but previously I it got my electric scooter last week, which took seven months to get. So for me I can I know, I, I I have heard um, issues with that and um, for me I could wait because um, you know the having a scooter is I had my old rusty skirt I could manage. But I know a lot of people who couldn't wait for their electric wheelchair and um, whether they're you know going, they've got, they've got some reason I can't wait. They have to self-fund it. And so that for me, I just think, oh, it's frustrating enough to keep following up on this. And I have the ability to do that, Um it's a very frustrating thing to do, but it did require a lot of follow up from me and my advocates.
1: Now, one other thing that really interested me was uh, when you're talking about the services that you're getting, and how, uh, like you said before, you had these informal supports, you had your family doing a lot of things for you. How has changing to now these funded supports changed your relationships with your family?
2: Yeah, I think um, that has been a massive change for me and one that I didn't ever think would ref- would happen. Um, I think a lot of it was about education of their, because our roles completely changed. And so what my parents, for example, did for me and a lot of my in informed spots had done for me Suddenly they were, um, they didn't need to do these things. So for them, they felt quite lost that they weren't helping me. But um, I think initially it was quite confronting and it was hard for them and me in that I felt suddenly I didn't need them anymore and I wasn't seeing them as readily and it was quite, I I needed their emotional support more. Um, And... In a way them coming around doing things like my bins and checking my mum meant that I would see them more. And suddenly that wasn't happening. Um but over time that we've sort of worked out ways that, you know, it's been evident I need that that support still and I think it's both sides adjusting, but it definitely has amazingly freed up that I, I don't feel a burden on them as much. Um, and, you know, particularly as my parents are ageing, for example, there there is so much they can do that they did. And I was reluctant to give them all these things to do when I knew that probably it was asking a bit much. But I am very sure that now they will get down, and that I'm not posing a burden on them. Yeah. So I think um, oh, it's it's it's, and it's very very from them. I'm sure to know that when they go, hopefully touch wood, that's not for a long time, but that our job was sorted. So, I think it's very reassuring for them too, and they don't have that guilt, that I'm sure many carers I imagine would have,
1: yeah, well, that sounds like yeah the outcome that like a good outcome to to get from from all this,
2: yeah, I think you know um I didn't ever think I would um reflect on this as a positive experience, but I think if anyone. And it, it, from my understanding, it's quite inconsistent in um, going through the process of becoming a participant of the NDIS. But um, some people get it really quickly and others like myself just, I yeah. know, have a, a strong weight and, um, and lots of appeals. And I think if anyone, it probably was a good thing it happened to me. Yeah, because hopefully now I can join that and make it easier for other people. Well,
1: given that, what um what advice would you give to people who um who, to try and get them get the most out of the NDIS?
2: Yeah, I think um for what if, if I think about the process I went from from the beginning, really go into the evidence, clate, and that I think you need to clate a lot of evidence from the beginning before the appeal about how to wear things and what what you can... Because it is assessed as, um, initially on paper, um, and so I think it's worth investing time in putting forward the application. But I think also, too, it's really important that you have support from your providers and informed support to as a way to um, communicate and, or relay that in a, in a better way. And unfortunately in a way that does focus on more of your disability, not your reality, but I have people around you to really highlight that, that there is still a good side to it. I think you need that emotionally to withstand it. Um, that it's really just a process you have to unfortunately um, go into it with uh, focusing on what you can't do, not what you can, and that's um, quite confronting. But I think if you, I think if with hindsight I'd known that going into it, it would have been a lot easier to go, okay, they want to know just the, bad things about this Um, and then I think also having that support to elicit the positive sides particularly after those interviews and applications to really uh, put things in perspective for you um, and support you particularly when you're like over and frustrated and don't want to follow up, phone call or see how it's going to have others around you to do that for you. Um, not to say that you can't do it and you can't self-manage, but I think in some ways I know for myself, even I'm able to do it, having another to advocate for me has made it a lot easier.
1: Well, thank you very much for, for coming in and giving you a perspective, Emma. And um, if you're not listening, would like to hear more from Emma. Like I said, she has a, a book called Reinventing Emma, uh, which you can find out more at her website, which is emma-g.com. And G is E. Yes. That's it. All right, thanks again for coming in, Emma. Thanks. Did you know you can customise the Enable Me website to suit all your viewing needs? You can choose large size fonts or different alignment of text on your screen, a high contrast screen so that different parts stand out, automatically underline the start and end of each sentence, read in easy English, and many more options. Set up once, and your personal settings are saved for all your future visits. Just click on the accessibility icon at the top of the screen. At enableme.org.au. Our next guest is Gabriella Obutivo, who works for BAPCARE as an NDIS local area coordinator, which, as we learned in part one of this podcast, is a person who can help you uh, with your application to get access to the NDIS. Uh, Gabriella, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Now, we've just heard Emma's story and what the, the kind of things that she went through to get onto the NDIS. Have you heard stories
3: like this before? Yes, yes, I have. They're actually, um, It's actually quite common. Um, uh, we get a lot of feedback to say that the access request process can be quite deficit focused um, which is really unfortunate but um, I suppose there is reasoning for that. Um, when we look at the NDIS legislation to get access onto the scheme we need to show evidence that someone's got a permanent and significant disability. Um, and particularly for a disability like stroke where um, the disability could be so varied from individual to individual, providing evidence and, um, and proving that someone's disability is, is significant, we need to go into detail about what that looks like for that person's day to day. We're getting a lot of um, what we call knockbacks for access requests um, where there's just simply not enough information for us, to, for the NDIA to make a decision um, around access, so much so that we've actually got a bit of a project going on around it, which I'll talk a bit later about, um, but we're just trying to improve the, the capacity of the community, particularly um, health, GPs and allied health, understanding how to... Um, submit those access request forms, we're seeing a lot of um, GPs when they're completing their access request forms not going into detail about what um, the functional impact is for that individual. So, for example, I supported someone recently with um, completing their access request form where the first application the deep GP had just stated needs a support worker um, in that application and that doesn't tell us enough information about um, what supports that person needs from day to day. So, we're just trying to help inform the um, GPs about what they can do as a part of the access. If GPs don't have The understanding of that individual's day-to-day to to be able to go into detail, what we're recommending is um, including within that application other assessments that um, the individual might have or that they can obtain, whether that be um, OT assessments, physio assessments, um, there might be hospital discharge um, paperwork. The social worker reports, we can even include support worker statements and self-statements so that you can explain from your perspective, which is invaluable, what your day-to-day looks like. Um, So there are a few things we can do as a part of that access request process that can get quite involved. Um, But ultimately, what we're trying to achieve is is showing evidence that that your disability is permanent and significant.
1: Yeah, I guess it's a big learning curve for everyone there. Yes. Um, Now, Yeah, it is one of the other aspects of the process that Emma uh, went through was the the appeal of the initial decision. Uh, mm-hmm. How does the appeals process work?
3: Yep, so you can, um, there's a few things, well basically you can review um, both an access request and you can also submit a review if funding wasn't included in your plan that you are not satisfied with. So I suppose when Emma was talking about um, that three month period of submitting an appeal for that access decision. Um, What Emma sounds like she ended up doing was submitting a whole new application and that's actually um, in a lot of instances what we're recommending because the outcome for getting a decision when you're submitting a whole new application is a lot faster than submitting a review. Um, so when you're uh, submitting an, an application, an access decision has to be made within about 28 days. Um, whereas if you're appealing the decision to not um, a, a decision around access, there's there's no time frame at the moment for that. So what um, we'd also recommend you do is get in touch with either the NDIA or the partner in the community, um, your LAC. uh to find out what the reasoning was for you not getting access to the scheme in most instances it's probably that there's just not enough information and they can help inform what information might be needed to provide be provided and that's what my team for example have been doing is actually meeting with individuals around those access requests to help inform what, what they can do to, to provide that evidence. Um, so that the NDIA have a clearer understanding of, of what your disability looks like for you.
1: Okay. And just, just some of the, um, just repeating, I guess some of the abbreviations there. So LAC, that's mm-hmm. a local area coordinator, which yeah. is someone like yourself. And the NDIA is the, uh, the organisation that operates the NDIS. Is that right? Correct. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So once you've gone through all this and once you actually get in the system and you have a plan uh, and you know what services are funded, you then need to find people to provide those services. So how can people go about finding good service providers?
3: Yeah, so um, when you have a plan, um, your local area coordinator can help you get in um, onto the portal, the NDIS portal, I'm sure some of you may have heard about. Um, And we have on the NDIS portal what we call a provider finder, so if you're wanting to search for, say, an occupational therapist, you can type that in and it will show you services in your area, um, registered providers in your area that provide that service. So that's one way you can go about finding providers. You can also speak to your LAC part of what their role is when it comes to helping you implement your plan, so to start um, understanding how to use it. They can help you um, uh, get connected with providers um, that will help you achieve your goals. So your LAC is really good uh, contact uh, to find service providers in the area. Some people might also have support coordination funded in their plan, which is uh, another third party who will actually help you connect with those providers and help you build a plan of what that year will look like and get you connected with those supports. Uh, I'd also recommend uh, just word of mouth as well. Speak to people that you know, family, um, providers that you're utilising might have some suggestions of different services that are coming out, Uh, online research. Um, And expos as well. The whole um, disability service provider, the whole market is changing with the NDI having come into place. It's becoming a competitive market. So there's all these new uh, creative services that are, are coming into play. So I suggest going along to those expos as well if you can.
1: Yeah, it sounds, um, it sounds quite a, a daunting market, that. Um, mm-hmm. Now, we spoke to another stroke survivor, Pip Murray, in part one of the podcast, and she mentioned that sometimes the service providers can double their prices when they find out that you're on an NDIS plan. Um, is that a concern? Do you have any advice for getting around that?
3: Yeah, so the reason I suppose that that's happening at the moment is when a registered provider uh, registers to be a provider with the NDIA, they're guided by what we have as as a price guide, so they can't charge over a price-guided amount. Uh, What a lot of providers are doing is just charging that maximum amount. Now, I suppose it's important to remember that with this becoming a competitive market, you do have the um, ability to try to negotiate that, if, if possible, a lot of providers are not negotiating, but hopefully, in time, um, providers will start to, you know, being the competitive nature of what they're doing, that might, you might start to see negotiations take place. Um, what I'd also stress is that um, your NDIS plan is a private document, particularly if you're self managing or plan managing. There's actually no need for anyone to know that you have a plan you can keep that information quite private and engage the service providers of your choosing. And and for example, if you're self-managing, you can jump onto the portal, draw out the funds to pay for that service without that provider even knowing you have a plan. Um, So, I I would sort of stress that even um, to a degree when you're agency managing, the only information a provider needs is your NDIS reference number and the date frames of your plan. So, they don't need to know what is in your plan, it is well within your rights to keep that information quite private. Um, The other thing I'd strongly recommend you do is make sure you're entering into service agreements. So a service agreement is basically a contract which will outline the nature of your supports over a period of time uh, and you have the ability to negotiate that service. It protects both parties, so it protects you as a consumer, and it also protects the provider um, so that they have a clear understanding of um, what their supports they're providing. So please make sure you're entering into service agreements. That's really important. Um, So that's probably what I would suggest you do um, in those situations. Great.
1: Now, we also heard from Emma about uh, the delay that she had with getting her electric scooter. Um, I assume that Mm -hmm. counts as capital funding, something like that? correct. Yep. When there are those sort of hiccups and delays, is is it also appropriate to lodge an appeal for that kind of thing, or are there other options of working through that process?
3: Well, it depends on the situation, and I don't know Emma's situation entirely, but you can't appeal a delay as such. So, what I would strongly recommend in that situation is keeping that open line of communication with your local area coordinator about what's causing the delay. Is it that they don't have enough information to make a decision on that capital equipment um, or is it that it's not being approved and under what grounds it's not being approved. So what you really want to do is just arm yourself with as much information as possible relevant to you because keeping in mind everyone's situation is different Um, Also familiarise yourself with um, reasonable and necessary decision-making. So any decision that uh, an NDIA delegate will make uh, is in line with the legislation, which is the reasonable and necessary decision-making. So, uh, you know, for example, it needs to reasonably uh, meet the expectations of informal networks. It needs to be value for money. It needs to assist that person in achieving their goals, facilitate social and economical participation. It needs to be effective and beneficial. And be most appropriately funded through the NDIA. So, if you can have a uh, an understanding of the decision-making process, um, that will sort of arm yourself with more information relevant to your situation, and might help inform what you might need to do next as well.
1: Yes, as we've heard before, uh, understanding the the language and the process is is one of the mm. key things here. Now, another part of the process is the annual review. Now, is it is it a uh, I understand that the plans only last for 12 months until they're reviewed. Is that correct?
3: So typically plans are for 12 months, um, but what we're going to see more and more of is with adults particularly entering into like their second or even third plan um, and people are starting to get more confident in how to use their funding and and what lies ahead for their year. So we will start to see more 24-month plans coming up. Um, But... For children though, for example, you'll likely mostly see 12-month plans and I suppose that's related as well to development. developmentally what happens for a child in 12 months is a lot more significant than for an adult. So um, there's a few things there but for adults you will start to see some longer plans um, coming into play um, and really with that review process it's just an exploration of what's um, what's gone on for you. A lot can change in a year. So we'll have a look at what you've spent your funding on. Um, you know, If you had trouble using your funding, why? Have you achieved some of your goals? Have your goals changed? Uh, is your circumstance changed? Uh, it's just a general review of your situation so that the next plan can be catered to your circumstance at that
1: time. Um, and if you have, uh, say, some unused funds from that first year of your plan, do they roll over to the next year or it just start from scratch?
3: No. So the whole point of that review process is to create a plan um, that's relevant to your circumstance at that time and will serve you for the, the period of time that the plan is in place for. So as we said, typically 12 months. So no pl- uh, funding amount won't roll over. Um, the plan amount is, is designed to, to service your needs for that, the course of that plan period.
1: Okay. So I see these individual plans that we're talking about. This is like one of the big focuses of the NDIS, but it does more than just pay for these. I see things like community projects, which you've you've mentioned um, briefly. Um, As a local area coordinator, can you tell us about um, a couple of the projects that, that you've worked on?
3: Yeah, sure. So um, I suppose it's important to know that not with access to the NDIS being for permanent significant disabilities, not everyone with a disability will get access to the NDIS. So the NDIS-A has a big focus on uh, making sure that we're building our communities to support all people with disabilities. Um, and so that's why partners are uh, taking on projects to help develop our communities to create more opportunities for people to get involved, involved and be included in communities. So... Um, Yes, one of the projects I spoke about earlier was um, helping build the capacity of the health system to understand the NDIS. That's been a big focus for us. But we've also got um, some really exciting projects that we've been working on. Um, So here in South Australia, um, we am really proud of my team, I have to say. We've achieved a lot in the year that we've been working with the NDIA. Um, We've recently um, supported... Uh, an all-inclusive music festival, um, so there was a, a, a mum here in South Australia, Karen Kelly is her name, and she has a son with a disability and she wanted her son to be able to experience a music festival like um, any young person can really. And so we supported with her with creating this um, music festival and we're going to be supporting with the second one which will hopefully be coming up in 2020.
1: Thanks, Gabriella. It's, um, it's really great to hear about all these different ways that um, that you're supporting people and, and benefiting the community.
3: Yeah, thank you very much.
1: Okay, that was our local area
0: coordinator, Gabriella Obutiva. In your stroke recovery, the answers you need are not always there when you need them, but you can always go online to the Enable Me website and ask the health professionals at StrokeLine. You might notice some changes and not be sure if you should get them checked out. You can ask on Enable Me. Perhaps you feel your progress is plateaued and you need some help setting new goals to keep going forward you can ask on enable me we're not here to replace your doctor but we will give you the latest evidence-based information to help you live well after stroke and you can also hear from other people in Australia's stroke community who might have similar experiences you can ask a question on the enable me website that's enableme.org.au by clicking on the ask a health professional link on the home page or call stroke line on 1 787 Six, five, three. Our
1: final guest today is Carol Pham. Carol is a physiotherapist and she can be heard on the Stroke Foundation Stroke Line. Carol, good to see you.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: Now, presumably there are many calls to Stroke Line and conversations on Enable Me that involve the NDIS. What are some of the success stories that you've heard?
4: On StrokeLine, we do hear a lot of success stories. Some of the ones that I guess stick in my memory a little bit is um, I had a recent girl call us wondering what the NDIS was all about and whether she would be eligible for the scheme. She was a young girl, had a stroke some years ago and was working part-time and didn't think that she would be eligible because she didn't have access to Centrelink and thought the scheme was means-tested. So during our conversation, we explored what kinds of difficulties she was having at home and, and what kind of supports that she would need to help improve the quality of her life. And over time, what we learned was that she was eligible for NDAS, was able to get on the scheme and most importantly, was able to access supports and services and therapy to help live a richer life. So difficulties with fatigue um, was a a big factor for her and she um, was able to access supports at home and services at home so that she could do the things that were really important for her, which was coming home and spending more time with her family and her kids.
1: But on the other hand, have you also got any examples of people who are having trouble with their NDIS plan?
4: Yes, of course, we get lots of calls on straight line about difficulties um, with the NDIS.
1: I imagine you're more likely to hear people who have got problems rather than people calling up to tell you that things are going well. So...
4: Yes, yes. We're here to help solve these problems on line. (laughs) So the majority of our calls on line are around accessing the NDIS or getting onto the scheme and having difficulties either because um, they're not quite meeting the eligibility criteria or don't have the right paperwork to support their application. So that was discussed quite heavily in our previous podcast. So there's lots of um, tips and tricks on how to overcome that. A very small proportion of our phone calls also go towards selecting the right providers, so young stroke survivors giving us a call and wanting to know um, what re- what we would recommend in terms of providing um, a physiotherapy or occupational therapy or selecting a carer agency at home. So certainly um, we do explore that with our young stroke survivors of the phone. It's about finding out what your needs are and what's important to you and Gabriella had some really nice tips around speaking to your local area coordinators, your support services around you, and getting some good, I guess, word of mouth recommendations is, is another idea as well. So um, certainly on Stroke line, we're here to, I guess, listen to what difficulties you're having and hopefully help you overcome it.
1: Now, I'm sure it's very hard to give a typical time frame for getting onto the NDIS, but while not everyone will have extensive delays like we've heard about, it's safe to say that it won't happen overnight. Is that correct?
4: Timeframes are really difficult, um, and I guess it is case by case. It depends on what the difficulty is, where where you're living, and in particular what kind of outcome you're looking for. So, if we're looking at, for example, home modifications, there is a bit of a process involved in that. In that, you need to have your home reviewed, you need a plan drawn up, you need to submit that plan through a number of portals, and then I'll wait for a response from that. So, it is quite tricky waiting out the process a little bit. Everybody has different experiences some people it might take a few months to be able to have a plan fully implemented it might take a little bit longer so what I would always encourage is to keep talking about it keep talking to your local area coordinators and your support coordinators about difficulties you're having and trying to find alternative solutions um, while you're waiting your time.
1: And obviously, if, if something goes wrong and you 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 know, you have an appeal against something, uh, one of the decisions was an access decision or the plan, that's also going to make things go longer.
4: Yes, that can absolutely uh, delay things. So if you've had a plan given to you and um, you're not quite happy with it and you'd like to have that plan reviewed, the appeals process can take a little bit more time, but certainly a process that's important for you to go through to help get you the best outcome possible.
1: Okay, so it's still worth it. Absolutely. And then, I guess on the other hand, you have Emma's situation where she just couldn't seem to get through, even though she would seem to be ideal for the NDIS. What advice would you give to people in her situation?
4: Having a rejection letter from the NDIS can be a little bit disencouraging, I suppose. We do often speak to stroke survivors on Stroke Line, and our advice is to try and keep persevering as much as possible. The advice that Emma gave around surrounding yourself with um, a good supportive network is really helpful. So if you've got family and friends who can help emotionally support you through that process, it's very helpful. From a professional perspective, getting as much support as possible through your allied health professionals and your GP is really important or any specialists who might be involved in your care. So, your neurologist or rehab consultant that may have been involved in your journey to help you along would be really helpful. So, Keep the conversation going and, and keep persevering and, and don't stop. Find out why you're, you're you're not getting onto the NDIS scheme and work from there. So um, there are a few key areas where we do get a lot of inquiries on straight line. One of it being that the disabilities too invisible and and, and not uh, something that we can see. So it can be difficult to assess. So that's where the allied health support through an occupational therapist or a neuropsychologist can be really helpful to really highlight any invisible difficulties that you may have, whether it be cognitive, visual or functional. Re-look at your paperwork and make sure that you're using the right language. We've heard a lot during this podcast about learning the language of NDIS and it's a really key part, I think. So taking the time to learn how you should word your letters and reports to help support you as best as possible is really important.
1: That all sounds very sensible. Okay, then to sum up, what are your top tips for managing your NDIS plan?
4: When it comes to the NDIS, there are a couple of components to think about. So, managing your plan might be a financial component. So, have a think about who you want to manage the money side of things for you. Is it something you can do yourself or is it something that a family member can do for you or is it something that you'd like to be able to give to an external party or provider such as a plan manager? Other than the financial side of things, you want to look at your service providers. So, how do you want to manage that? Do you want some help to look for service providers and and get a support coordinator involved, or do you feel confident enough that you can do it yourself and and search for your own physiotherapist, for example, or carer to come into the home to help with your cleaning? And if you're feeling confident to do that, then absolutely go down that pathway. Just be aware of some of the things that you need to be able to do. So if you're choosing to manage your own finances, you do need to be able to balance the books at the end of the day. And do you have the ability to do that? And do you? Or confident that you could do it correctly. When it comes to service providers like picking a therapist or a carer to come into your home, have a think about what your individual needs are and make sure you interview a few and make sure you're selecting the right one for you. So, Gabby spoke a little bit earlier on about perhaps getting word of mouth advice or picking someone who's local to your area. It might be really important for you to have someone who has specific expertise in stroke recovery. So, have a think about what's really important for you and match your service providers to your individual needs.
1: Thanks a lot, Carol. Now, remember, if you want to speak to a health professional like Carol, you can call StrokeLine on 1-800-787-653 or 1-800-STROKE, or you can ask a question through Enable Me and get a response from health professionals and other stroke survivors. Now, that's it for part two of our NDIS podcast. Remember, if you haven't yet listened to part one, you can find it via the Enable Me website or from wherever you found this one. And if you do like what you've heard, please give us a good rating and review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you've download of this podcast as that helps us lift us in the search rankings so that other people can find our podcast. Thanks once again to our guests, Emma G, Gabriella Obietivo and Carol Pham.
0: That's all for today's Enable Me podcast. You can find out more on this topic and continue the conversation or listen to other podcasts in the series at enableme.org.au. It's free to sign up and you can talk with thousands of other stroke survivors, carers and supporters. You can also suggest a topic or provide feedback on this podcast. Enable.me has qualified health professionals from StrokeLine who can answer your questions and give evidence-based advice. The advice given here is general in nature and you should discuss your own personal needs and circumstances with your healthcare professionals. Music in this podcast is signed by Stroke Survivor Antonio Ianella and his band The Lion Tamers. It was recorded at Antonio Studio, which you can find out more about at facebook.com slash studio4four99. That's four U R99. This Enable Me podcast series is produced by the Stroke Foundation in Australia, working to prevent, treat and beat stroke. It's StrokeFoundation.org.au